1: If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use.
2: Today's cool fact of the day is that laconophobia is a condition in which someone is intensely afraid of vegetables. The root word means vegetable in Greek, not much is known about that phobia, but it's possible that George W. Bush was a lacanophobe because in 1990, he banned broccoli from Air Force One.
1: Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols
2: Dr. Terry Walls. She's a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa with more than 60 peer reviewed scientific abstracts, posters, and papers. In short, she's a real doctor and a real researcher. But what really helps her stand out is that she gave a TED talk and just published a book called The Walls Protocol How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine. This is uh, pretty hardcore stuff. Uh, Terry was in a wheelchair and nearly disabled from MS and used a high-fat diet, which we're going to talk about today, along with tons of vegetables, to reverse her symptoms and even some electrical stimulation. I have met with Terry multiple times in person, and she walks around, and, you know, you would never guess that she had MS and was wheelchair-bound. So Terry, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on again
3: oh great thank you so much for having me
2: now how long ago were you in a wheelchair
3: so you know in 2003 um, is when it was uh, I made that transition 2007 uh, I was still uh, in a wheelchair began the interventions by 2008 I was out of the wheelchair walking with a cane then walking without the cane then biking and biking 18 miles
2: that is remarkable so it just completely, in just, what, four years or so, you reversed what's been going on for a long time.
3: Well, you know, in just one year, I went from being struggling to walk 25 yards to being able to walk uh, with two canes, two walking sticks. Uh, so in about six months of my protocol, I was walking uh, with a cane very comfortably, uh, and uh, then walking without a cane, and in a year, able to bike uh, the 19 miles. Uh, I've continued to slowly improve, um, and this last weekend I was on the treadmill, uh, and I'm very excited about this, Dave, because I was at four miles an hour for 20 minutes, uh, covered uh, a mile and a half uh, at a slow jog or a brisk walk in between the two. So it's it's thrilling, uh, and I'm quite hopeful now, within another year, I'll be able to uh, jog pretty comfortably.
2: Is jogging a good, useful form of
3: exercise? Uh, well, actually, I think intervals are much better, Okay. so I, I do interval work and weight training. But being able to jog or run again, it just feels miraculous.
2: I can't imagine after having been in a wheelchair like that, I, I maybe in small relationship, I always had flat feet and terrible pain. I had arthritis in my knees when I was 14, and I didn't know you were supposed to be able to walk without it hurting. I just thought that was part of walking. Until I was about maybe 20 or so, I got orthotics. And for the first time, I'm like, wow, I walked across campus and it didn't hurt. Just because it was outside my universe that you could move without hurting. Uh, So I imagine it must be about a thousand gazillion times more when you get out of a wheelchair for the first time.
3: Well, you know, uh, since I had progressive MS, my physicians have been very clear that functions once lost never return. And I had, you know, in the process of coming to terms with my illness, I had accepted that that would never come back. I was just going to get progressively more disabled, hit, uh, become bedridden. And when I started my intervention, my goal was simply to uh, put that off you know, a few more years if I could. I had no idea that I was going to recover and walk again uh, easily, bike again, and now uh, even jog.
2: It is. It, it's so remarkable. How did your family respond when you suddenly like stopped declining, even though all of medicine said you were going to continue? And then, like, like what? What was it like for you? I don't think um, you cover that so much in your book.
3: You know, we we had all accepted that I had progressive MS and things were going to get steadily worse. Uh, it is interesting for all of us. I had to get remarkably better. I'm walking around the neighborhood without a cane, um, and we were all still like not sure what to expect. I remember the day that I uh, decided I was going to try riding my bike for the first time. Uh, You know, I put my helmet on, I was rolling my bike out. The family all rushed out, grabbed the bike, and we had this family meeting, you know, could I try riding my bike? And my kids were terrified. They're crying. They're really upset. They're afraid I'm going to get hurt. Uh, Fortunately, uh, Jackie says, well, uh, I I think this is going to be okay. And she told Zach to run on the right side, my daughter to run on uh, the left side. She would follow on her bike. uh, And I got on the bike and biked around the block. And and at the end, we're all crying, uh, sobbing. um, And that was the first time that I, uh, part of my kids uh, and my wife realized things really were changing, that we didn't know what was going to happen. And quite possibly, I was going to continue to recover and get close to normal function again at some point. So that wow. was it. a very, very big day for us.
2: How does your path of healing MS, which a lot of our listeners don't have MS, and actually some percentage of them are bound to get it and don't know it because you know oh, yeah. it's a neurodegenerative disease and it takes you know 10 plus years from when you might first have some autoimmune stuff happening. Um, so if, if you don't know you're one of those people, how does what you did, which is, superhuman, honestly. Uh, how does that apply to you know, a normal guy?
3: Well, you know, actually, it's, it's very interesting. In my uh, clinical research lab, I have a lot of undergraduate students who volunteer in the lab for experience uh, and credit. So one of the requirements I have, if you're going to work with me, is you have to adopt the diet for at least <laughs> two weeks. You keep food logs, you turn them in, and if you uh, actually do all of that, then I'll say, okay, we'll let you be, uh, join the lab. Uh, so these kids, in their uh, mid to late twenties, in their prime, uh, are quite surprised with how much more energy they have, how much clearer their thinking is, uh, with this two-week change. Uh, several kids have discovered that their migraines have gone away,
2: magically, uh, huh?
3: <laughs> and their you know aches and pains, stiffness have gone away, and the vast majority of kids, you know, become converted, like. I had no idea I could feel this good. So even people who think they are well uh, often discover that they were just sort of mediocre and suddenly their energy uh, and uh, mental clarity is vastly better.
2: One of the goals with, with a Bulletproof Diet is to just get people for one day to feel that way. Because I think as you've experienced with your, your students, when people get on on a diet with the right nutrients and a, a clean diet, and we share a lot of common philosophies and oh, recommendations. Yeah. Uh, that once they feel that, like, why would you ever want to feel like what used to be normal for you again? Like, it doesn't matter how you know, old you are.
3: I, you know, I think a good way of thinking about this uh, that I try to explain is it's like seeing the world either in black and white or color. <laughs> once you see color, who wants to dial back to black and white? Yeah. So once you experience full health and vitality, why would you like to go back to feeling exhausted and befuddled again? no one does did you ever
2: use modafinil or provigil to try and get your energy as a
3: matter of fact i did Uh because like most people with severe uh ms fatigue uh they gave me provigil first 100 milligrams then 200 then 300. it didn't do a lot but the small amount that i did i was you know very grateful for it so yeah i stayed on that um and uh, if i go back to 2007 i started everything in november um, you know, and in February, I realized, man, I just was not sleeping. And then fortunately for me, Jackie said, you know, Terry, why don't you stop the thing?
2: <laughs> it is an anti-narcolepsy drug. So oh, if yeah. you're getting like let's, three or four hundred a day.
3: <laughs> so, you know, I stopped that. Uh, I slept well. And, you know, my uh, energy continued to be great. I, um, you know, I, and then uh, so in April, I, I called my neurology. Doctor, and by this time I've been walking around fine without my cane, and I tell them, you know, there's been a change. I should probably see him. Uh, And I, you know, I'm over there in the waiting room. His nurse is walking around uh, with a chart, looking for people, and I'm thinking, I bet she's looking for somebody in a wheelchair. Doesn't realize (laughs) that I'm not in anymore. So I stand up and go, "Hey, Cindy, over here." So she looks at me. Her jaw drops. Like, Doctor Walls. Oh my God, what's happened? And I walk in. See her, see my uh, neurologist, and uh, he is incredibly impressed and very excited uh, by the changes. He, of course, was thrilled that I stopped the provigil. Uh, and at that time, we talked about slowly tapering my disease modifying drugs, uh, which we did. Uh, we have the cell sept for a week, then have it again for another week, and then I was off. And so I've been off that since 2008, and I've done extremely well.
2: Uh, the reason I was asking is, is that you know, we're, we're about to start talking about mitochondria, and I was on ProVigil for eight years, and I, I didn't have MS. I, I have I had Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which I cured, and, and I certainly had some autoimmune conditions brought about by toxic mold exposure and some other things. So I was I was pretty darned unhealthy, you could say, but. Uh, I was on ProVigil for about eight years, and when you talk about just being tired and fatigue and all, but I, I've also, I, I've largely gone off of it, It's it was something that was a daily thing, and, and what sparked that was when you said it was like living in color or black and white, when I was you know, not, when I didn't understand the principles behind how to eat properly, I felt like I was always kind of in black and white, and I would take ProVigil, and then the colors would come back, yeah. um, like that scene in Whatever, uh, Alice in Wonderland, uh, the original movie, where it suddenly like everything wakes up. So uh, you just kind of triggered that memory for me, and it's interesting that you did experiment with uh, performance-enhancing substances like that and got some benefit, but you're not on it now. And you're I mean, look how you're performing; it's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah.
3: Well, you know the the real performing medicine, food.
2: I know that, right. that old Hippocrates. Uh, you know, let thy was it Hippocrates? Let thy medicine be thy food.
3: Yes, absolutely.
2: Now you are a white lab coat wearing university professor and oh yeah you've i mean you're one of the those doctors who you know obviously doesn't get it because you're a doctor you know there's a, kind of an almost a backlash against western medicine but you are not part of that backlash what do the other more straight-laced conservative physicians say when you say food is medicine? I mean, it almost flies in the face of what the the drug companies are preaching.
3: You know, because I'm also a researcher, and I uh, I write grants, get funding, uh, do clinical trials, and every uh, year we have two research days, uh, one for the Department of Medicine, one for the College of Medicine, where my lab presents our data. And so my colleagues have seen the progress with other progressive MS folks, and the remarkable results uh, that we are showing. And uh, physician scientists, we love data. Uh, We like to give each other a hard time, of course, but it's very exciting. So more and more people are coming by. Now that we have videos before and after the gate changes, uh, people are very excited, very thrilled. I'm going around to various departments at the university, giving research seminars, uh, going nationally and internationally uh, to present our research
2: that is so cool and i just want to say thanks because when you can get uh, people who are in a position to help so many people like physicians are to you know bring the food side in with the hardcore medical physiology biochemistry yes. and pharmacology that that they're trained in to bring all that together it seems like you know as a biohacker i i'm not opposed to Pharmaceuticals, hormones, uh, exercise, food—like whatever the tools are that help me to, you know, improve a system. So for you to do to take the credibility you've earned throughout your career, and then to help apply that to helping other medical professionals help more people, like, thank you. I—we just need so much more of that. So keep it up.
3: Right. You know, it it helps. You know, I I talk biochemistry, physiology. We talk mechanisms. Uh, I have more uh, basic scientists asking to join my lab. Because they know I have all this frozen blood and these very interesting <laughs> results, and so people are now talking and pitching ideas as to how we're going to analyze our uh, frozen serum. Um,
2: that's even cooler. Um, do you have access to the the military blood? Someone was talking about. I think it was Tom O'Brien from the Gluten Free Summit who was on the show. Was talking about how they looked at autoimmune markers going back like twenty and thirty years from the military samples that they get from new um, draftees.
3: Oh, that would be very very interesting. To get access to that, writing another grant, getting funding, proposing, et cetera. So that's more of a basic scientist. So I would find one of my uh, partners to do that. I do this radical thing known as seeing patients intervene with people <laughs> and seeing what happens over time. Yeah. And then I get my basic scientists, who are the lab rats, to analyze uh, the bloods, to figure out the biochemistry and the physiology. You know, We're talking about Zuhair Balas, who's the chair of allergy immunology. He and I are planning what are the cytokine analyses that we'll be doing on the blood. And that's going to be really very, very interesting to get this uh, detailed immunologic analysis to see how things change uh, as the year progresses on our study diet.
2: Now, I have to ask this, and I apologize to all of our listeners in advance because most people don't know about this, but melanocyte stimulating Hormone, or MSH, are you looking at that yes. by any chance? That's part of the new Bulletproof Diet book. I have a little bit in there about how well, diet affects MSH in the gut, so that's
3: cool. We have not yet finalized our panel. It's going to, uh, We have to sort out what we can do within our budgetary constraints, so I'll have to get back to you on that.
2: All right. Uh, my uh, my MSH is low, which happens when you have 28, the genes that 28% of us have and you're exposed to toxic molds through uh, breathing it. So uh, it's funny. I just got my test results back. I've known for years because of symptoms that I was low, so I'm actually treating that now, and we'll see what happens.
3: Oh, interesting. Well, I look forward to hearing more.
2: Well, let's uh, – so again, everyone, I apologize. Sorry, I just have to ask these questions when I get an awesome expert on the phone. Let's talk more about mitochondria, would you kind of give an overview of what is a mitochondria? What is Absolutely. ATP for people who are listening? And then let's talk about how you hacked yours and how other people might be able to hack theirs.
3: So, we're going to go back 1.5 billion years. Uh, the Earth's covered with a terrible poison, which is killing off uh, large swaths of life. There are a few bacteria that have adapted to this uh, toxic poison, and uh, they've learned how to use the poison uh, oxygen more efficiently in generating ATP. These uh, ancient bacteria are engulfed by other bacteria and they develop a symbiotic relationship. Uh, This new bacteria will evolve over time to become animals and eventually us, of course. Uh, So that means all of our cells have these ancient bacteria that help us generate adenosine triphosphate. So our mitochondria are really bacteria. in the most energy-intensive cells, our brain, our retina, and our heart, we have about 10,000 mitochondria per cell. Now, in medical school, I had to memorize you know, lots and lots of reactions involving my mitochondria, but no one taught me what I needed to feed my mitochondria to be sure that they could have optimal function and from what kind of uh, things were particularly toxic. So um, That's one of the things that I investigated as I figured out uh, from my reading that likely mitochondria were the root cause of my fatigue, my brain fog, and the uh, atrophy or shrinkage of brain tissue in MS, Parkinson's, Lou Gehrig's, Huntington's, all these neurodegenerative processes. So with more reading study, you know, I figured out uh, that I needed all the B vitamins, zinc, magnesium, uh, sulfur, antioxidants, uh, and essential fats because the mitochondria are, you know, have lots of membrane around the cell and within the mitochondria to run that chemistry. So they're also incredibly dependent on omega-3, omega-6 fats. And you want to flood your body with that nutrition so your mitochondria can perk up and come back to life. It also means uh you particularly need to uh protect them from heavy metals, aluminum, arsenic, lead, mercury, uh being the foremost toxic
2: So would you say that if someone potentially was at risk of getting MS, or everyone is at some risk, but someone maybe has it in their family, that by maybe feeding their mitochondria a little bit better, avoiding some metals well, detoxing regularly, are they going to improve their odds of so just not getting sick?
3: I'll uh tell you if you have a sibling with uh, MS five percent risk, parent three percent risk, two parents, 30 percent risk. So always your diet and your environmental factors are, you know, 95 to 70 percent of your risk. To that end, nutrient-dense diet, detoxing uh, is profoundly profoundly helpful to make sure <laughs> you keep a healthy, vital brain Sorry. and healthy, vital mitochondria. And that really goes uh, true for all these complicated chronic diseases that many of my colleagues erroneously let their patients think, you know, it's my DNA. I was just destined to get heart failure or diabetes or obesity or obsessive compulsive disorder or whatever, when it's really probably at most 5% genetic and 95% nutrient density of your diet uh, and your toxic exposures.
2: Now. When I say detoxing, a common response I get from like the skeptic crowd online is like, oh, there's no such thing. Detoxing is you know, you know, there's no such thing. Your body has natural detox systems and all that. Why, you know, why do you focus so much on detoxing? I mean, we do have livers, we do have kidneys, we have skin. You know, we we well, secrete toxins. What what's different?
3: So those definitely <laughs> are the organs that are going to process and eliminate the toxins. But in order to do that, that's still a biochemical process. That's dependent on having uh, the proper substrates. It's dependent on having a lot of, um, so you can induce those enzymes, upregulate them, particularly if you have a lot of sulfur-rich vegetables, which is why my protocol stresses the uh, sulfur-rich vegetables, because that's going to really uh, amplify your ability to detox. If you don't provide your those um, systems the proper substrates they're not going to function very well. And the toxins, instead of being excreted, will get placed in your fat and in your brain, where they ramp up the inflammation, ramp up the neurodegeneration, uh, and lead to progressively more damage.
2: In a lot of the work I do with Bulletproof clients, uh, coaching work for people who don't have MS, don't have chronic diseases, but they just want to perform better, similar recommendations seem to work remarkably well. So people who who think they're well, and uh, by all measures are well, when they add the sulfur-rich vegetables, they eat a lot more vegetables. They take the vitamins and all of the things that increase mitochondrial function. And a lot of the, the two things I focus on most are mitochondrial function and inflammation. And if you can get both of those, one up, one down, magically it seems like normal people become gifted with strange abilities they didn't know they had, and sick people become well. Um, is there a set of people where this doesn't work, or is this kind of a universal thing we should all be doing?
3: I would say this is a universal thing. Uh, you know, we're biochemical beings. Uh, life exists because of self-correcting chemistry that actually keeps the concentrations of minerals at a very narrow range in the cell, out of the cell, uh, if they get too far out of whack, you die. And so our bodies, as as well-tuned as it can be given the substrates that we give it. As a result, as we ramp up that nutrition, that self-correcting chemistry gets healthier, healthier, and healthier. Um, it, and so your health continues to improve. You uh, tend to continue youthening. You know, Obviously, you'll begin aging again at some point. But you know, very typically, in, in my clinics and our clinical trial, people euthan. Uh, it looks like they euthan for about 10 years, and then they begin to age again.
2: Uh, my own experience uh, is that i i certainly have more energy more performance uh, more focus than i did ever in my 30s and i'm i'm just over 40 uh, it's remarkable even things like like skin quality and things like that are are better than they were and some of the other markers of aging like uh, there's a heart rate variability thing that predicts your age reasonably well i score younger than i actually am and i i'm certain that the fact that i've been quote, minding my mitochondria for more than a decade and doing everything I can think of to make my myelin stronger. Um, seems like it just helped, even though I, I didn't have MS. But who knows? Maybe I was on that path. Like it, It's very hard to predict.
3: Well, you know, when you look at uh, chronic disease on a molecular level and a cellular level, uh, what, what we see, Dave, is that it's all the same disease. You have mitochondria that are not working well, too much oxidative stress. You have inflammation uh, that's inappropriate in and uh, in attacking uh, the self. You have nutrient deficiencies. Uh, you have toxins that are present, revving up the inflammation. Yeah, and we see that whether it's an autoimmune condition, uh, whether it's a mental health problem, whether it's a neurodegenerative problem. Uh, so, you know, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, MS at the molecular level are surprisingly similar, so that is why if we treat people at the cellular molecular level to address those broad categories, health improves. It, it, you know, it makes clinic vastly easier uh, because now you know I make a diagnosis, I, I give my prescriptions to, to take care of the acute problem, and then I make diagnoses of the nutritional adequacy the probability of mitochondria dysfunction, uh, whether or not there's inappropriate inflammation, and the toxic overload. I address those problems, and it's a pretty straightforward addressing for whatever the underlying condition is, Help and coach people with these lifestyle changes. They come back uh, every month with more and more energy, more excitement, more vitality, and they can't, they're so grateful for getting their lives back.
2: It's, uh, it's certainly been my experience when uh, I was 100 pounds overweight. I felt like I got my life back. And I, I see this quite often with, with bulletproof people who aren't treating medical conditions, but like we all want to live more life. And it's, yeah. I, I'm sort of sad that, that when I you know, went to the doctor many years ago and said, you know, I, I, something's wrong, like I, I, like I can tell something's wrong. I, what do I do? And the answer was, I guess you should eat healthy and lose some weight. <laughs> I'm like, ah, why didn't anyone tell me the kind of things that, that you're telling people? And granted, we know a lot more now, but you're still at the forefront of, of getting the word out yeah. there through medical professionals. You know,
3: it, yeah. it is, it's <clears throat> interesting. So um, I've taken an unusual approach. I'm doing the clinical research, writing grants, writing papers, and, and going down the academic route. But I care so much about the world that I'm also teaching the public, You know, doing TED Talks, creating a website, writing books and giving the public the same tools that I'm researching and letting them know, here's the science uh, behind why I've designed it this way and why I'm doing the science this way. So the public can decide, like, okay, looks safe. I'm gonna give it a try. Or they can say, well, you know, I think I'm gonna wait for a few more trials, FDA approval, and they can set back. But more and more of the public are ready to evaluate science simultaneously and take these very common sense, very easy – well, behavior is not an easy thing to change, but you know, far easier than taking chemotherapy or <laughs> disease-modifying, drugs are going to shut down your immune system and give you life-threatening side effects that could let you get your life back from an autoimmune condition or a serious psychiatric problem or severe uh, diabetes, obesity, and heart disease. Things that are completely under their control.
2: Yeah, I, I'm grateful that you're, you're helping people directly and doctors. Uh, one thing that not a lot of, you know, even paleo people talk about as much, but you talk about because you're a physician, is myelin. And I, I've yes. been particularly fascinated with the types of fats in myelin, and I'm working on some new ways of, of increasing myelin strength. Because you had MS. Uh, I know that you would know a lot about myelin, but can you talk about what this is and why people who aren't sick should care about the state of their myelin?
3: Okay. Well, I'm going to go back even a little bit further. (laughs) So all of our cells are wrapped in a cell membrane, which is made of fat. And that fat's going to include saturated fat, and cholesterol, about 70%, omega-6 fat, omega-3 fat, and about the 3 to 1 or 4 to 1 ratio. And for... Uh, it's critical that those cell membranes have plenty of saturated fat, plenty of cholesterol, plenty of omega-3 and omega-6, because the cell membrane is how our cells communicate with the world uh, and the cell functions. The myelin is that cell membrane wrapped around around and around and around and around and around and around, so it is a very dense layer of fat, saturated fat, cholesterol, omega-3, and omega-6 fat. So it it makes me completely uh, sad and crazy when uh, people are talking about a low-fat diet for somebody who has a myelin problem, because myelin is made of fat, and you (laughs) need to have saturated fat, you need to have cholesterol to make that myelin. You also need omega-3 and omega-6 fat uh, as well.
2: And you, you need undamaged fats, not deep-fried omega-6 and saturated oh fat. Oh, <laughs>
3: So uh, I, I talk about this a lot in my book. Uh, fat's a very, very important thing. And if the fat is liquid at room temperature and you heat it, you will oxidize it and make trans fats and it's catastrophic. You don't want to go near any vegetable oil that's been heated. If you're going to heat fat, it should be solid at room temperature. Uh, And then uh, that fat is not going to be damaged. It'll be okay to consume.
2: One of the things, in fact, I haven't even shared this with you. It's kind of a secret. But by the time we publish this podcast, I think it won't be a secret anymore, is uh, I've been working for a long time to get a a stable supply of grass-fed butter so that I can get ghee. And we have bulletproof ghee coming out which oh, is made from grass-fed animal because it's solid at room temperature for cooking. Like, that's what I use yeah, it for, right?
3: this will be great.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I've been working on this for, for years to try and find a, a supply that – I don't know if it's a big enough supply, but there's a shortage globally of grass-fed butter, thanks to your work, <laughs> to things like Bulletproof yes, Coffee. Yeah. But let's keep the shortage happening so we'll get more cows and more grass-fed farms, and maybe we'll have more grass. Like, it, it could be good for the environment, too.
3: Yes, it'd be very good.
2: So we talked about, you know, fat being stable at room temperature – what about things like canola oil and soybean oil? What's your take on those if they're, well, like, quote, unheated? Um,
3: I think they're catastrophic c- compounds. Uh, okay. Canola oil is genetically modified. Uh, and it has a lot of uh, uresic uh, acid in it, which uh, is toxic. Soybean oil, again, genetically modified. Uh, I would avoid that. I would prefer uh, a combination of flax oil, sunflower oil, to get the omega-6, uh, omega-3, uh, and look for products that will help you get like three to one, four to one, omega six, so three to one uh, omega three, sort of that ideal ratio.
2: So, so that's an area where I I've come across different information in that mm-hmm. vegetable omega threes don't convert very well in the body, like a ratio of forty five to one into the really useful omega threes. So, I, like flax oh, okay. seed oxidizes so fast. Like, why do you do flax yeah. instead of just fish and krill?
3: So to get the omega-3 for your um, uh, EPA, DHA certainly is ideal. If you're going to use any kind of uh, oil on your salad dressing, I want that in that three-to-one ratio.
2: Okay, if you're going to use it for salad dressing. Okay. Yes, I, yes, yes. I typically use like an avocado. Uh, so I should
3: uh, clarify that. Oh, okay, that uh, makes so sense. You use cold, cold oil on your salad dressing, I want it in that three-to-one ratio. Uh, for your daily uh, use, I'd much rather you eat Cold water fish, wild game, grass-fed meat, so you get plenty of that EPA, DHA.
2: That makes sense. Uh, For my salad dressing, I usually use an avocado, and I'll blend it with uh, brain octane oil, which is a saturated short-chain or medium-chain fat, right? And that way I'm not doing it, and if I want the flavor, I'll splash in olive oil, but I try to keep the omega-6s down, even from olive oil, and that's, of course, extremely fresh, dark glass-packed olive oil kind of thing. Um, I did, however, though, uh, in a recent test, depending on, you know, there's different labs and all, they're saying I, I'm low in omega 6 fats, at least in, in one yeah. certain kind, in, in GLA. The question is are most labs, because so many people eat so much omega 6 these days, are the standards off? Like, have you come uh, across? No. This?
3: It, uh, um, if we're taking a lot of omega 3 oils, mm-hmm. we can end up over replacing. Uh, the omega-3s and not having omega-6, particularly, you know, you and I are, um, we're attuned to the dangers of omega-6, so taking the vegetable oils out, Uh, and if we keep supplementing the omega-3s, we can overshoot and get the ratio omega-3s to omega-6 swung too far to the omega-3. So that's a potential hazard, and ideally, you get, get a fatty acid analysis, so you know where your ratio is, and realize, like, Oops, I overshot. I'm going to cut back my uh, supplements so I can get things back in a proper balance. And that is, frankly, the hazard. Anytime we're supplementing uh, minerals or fats, uh, is to figure out uh, how to do that without getting the ratios uh, off the optimal range.
2: It's uh, it's tough too because so many of the optimal ranges, like, whoa, you're 45. So if you're 45, the average for the world is this. So that's about the middle of the range. And you're like, oh, I don't want that average. I want like average for like an ass-kicking superhero. (laughs) If only we know what that is, right?
3: (laughs) That is exactly true. So what is the reference range that we should use uh, for, for example, our optimal vitamin D level or optimum vitamin B12 level? So total levels are hard to interpret. It's the ratios that are most useful. And finding uh, somebody with enough nutrition experience to help you know what is that target ratio can be very uh, is difficult. And this is an emerging field, Dave. So you're you're not alone.
2: I am so fascinated by this stuff. Uh, I I also think there's a big genetic component to this. And the the more I look at you know, how people's immune response happens based on this presence of this gene or that gene. Uh, the more complex it is and the more it's really apparent that what you do with your environment is so much more important than the genes you have for most genes. Some genes you're just screwed yep. if you have it. but <laughs>
3: True. Uh, but mostly it's in our environment. And the other thing that I think uh, too many people are not aware of, so my ep- epigenetic heritage, which is how the environment interacts with my genes without changing the DNA, has been passed on to my two kids, Zach and Zeb, but my choices get passed on for four generations.
2: Now, so why do you say four generations? Because we know the uh, Indians said seven, and I know two we've proven, but four is an unusual number to choose for that. Why, why four generations? Uh,
3: that's what I uh, have, have read from other geneticists. Cool. And part of it has to do with Pottinger's work. Uh, when they uh, fed the cats' uh, diets that were not so optimal, the cats progressively deteriorated. And at the fifth generation, they were sterile, and he did that repeatedly. If at the fourth generation, he gave them you know, the optimal nutrient-dense diet, in four generations, uh, the uh, cats would have a normal phenotype. And
2: Interesting. So- I remember that as is- nine, yeah. I, so my memory is just off. I, I cover yeah. that in the Better Baby book, but okay, it's five. That, that's cool.
3: So the epigeneticists are, are presuming that, and we don't know this, obviously, for humans, but we're presuming if it took... Uh, four generations or five generations to create sterility for the cats and that with four generations, you could uh, recover them back to a normal phenotype that we think it's likely four generations for humans. We don't know for sure. I hope
2: it's it's only four. Humans and pigs are so sensitive to toxins compared to rats, mice, cats and all these other things, Like, like way more sensitive because of the way we process, the way we bioaccumulate. I suspect that we may be more sensitive. But what this research didn't apply just to girl cats. This means that if you are going to be a father someday, (laughs) that what you do with your food affects your offspring as much as what the mother ate before pregnancy. And then during pregnancy, obviously, what the mother eats is is of vital, vital importance. Um, But like we're talking big stuff. So if you think you're going to get drunk, have pizza, beer, smoke, but you're the dad, it's okay. It doesn't work like that.
3: And our health that we have was dependent on the previous four generations. Mm -hmm. So when people say, you know, Grandpa, you know, uh, smoked, uh, drank alcohol, and he lived to be 80. Well, his previous four generations were all working really hard, had great nutrient-dense diets. And to think that we could smoke and have terrible uh, choices and have that not affect our offspring is just so wrong and so naive and, and so unfortunate.
2: Now this is a probably a rough question, but are you concerned about a global population problem?
3: Well, um, it's out of my area of expertise. I, I think that there are having nine billion people on this planet is probably not going to be a good thing. But my observation is the uh, chronic health is declining. Uh, the chronic health uh, is worsening. Uh, when I look at our kids, you know, one in three uh, being uh, obese or one in two if you're African American or Hispanic, I don't know what the world population is going to be, but I see fertility rates falling. I see chronic disease uh, cropping up. I think our ability to fight infections uh declining. So I don't know what will happen to the population, but I don't see continued growth uh, uh, that, that going was- on infinitely because we're wrecking the environment. We're wrecking ourselves. Fortunately, I, I do see... Segments within the population understanding diet and lifestyle and uh, returning to more health promoting ways.
2: It seems like, given this four generation problem, uh, um, it seems to me like we have a population problem now, but we'll have less of one going forward because it is vanishingly difficult to conceive. You know, one in eight couples doesn't just—they can't conceive without artificial help. And exactly. It's getting worse, um, Lana. Exactly. Uh, Lana. And this is happening. Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
3: Internationally, you know, yeah. Sperm rates are dropping globally, internationally. Yes, I, I completely agree.
2: It's amazing. Lana is a, a small sample size. My wife, uh, you know, Dr. Lana, but but because of the Better Baby Book, she does uh, fertility coaching, and she's got clients, you know, in the Middle East, in China, in the UK, in India. Like they're. They do it over Skype. But it's interesting. It's not just in the US. It's not just in North America. It's even in you know so-called uh, you know, younger countries or, or countries that haven't had you know, the westernization for more than a couple of generations. It seems like it's global. And I, I mean, I, I look at my kids and I've done everything possible since before they were born to try and reverse this trend. And you know, they eat the cleanest stuff I can find and afford. And I, I devote more time and energy to it than I'd like. I just hope that you know when they turn 18, they're not out, you know, eating pizza and God knows whatever else, and undoing it because I know when I was 18, that's probably what I would have done. So I'm really hoping well, to pass the values on, right?
3: I'll tell you, my teenage kids did fall away from the good nutrition, uh-huh. uh, but uh, you know, fortunately for me, my daughter gets migraines, so she pretty quickly, yeah. like, okay, these migraines are miserable, so she's back uh, eating a really good diet, uh, and my son is also coming back to eating uh, really clean. Your kids will probably do that, but hopefully they'll, it'll be for a very brief time and they'll come back.
2: I was just about to ask this. My next question was, what happened with your kids? So you've been down that <laughs> path already and uh, you, you give me great hope there. Let's talk about intelligence for a little while. Sure. Uh, I am putting together like a really comprehensive uh, brain program and I would love to know what you recommend for increasing IQ.
3: Physical exercise is probably one of the most important uh, because physical exercise stimulates nerve growth factors. You'll also want to uh, do learning, particularly if you can learn uh, a new language. uh, That's very, very uh, powerful. Take care of stress, uh, heart math, and other programs to help you decrease your sympathetic tone, uh, your parasympathetic tone a little bit. That would be very helpful uh, maximize your mitochondria and fat. You need lots of good, healthy fat for your brain. Very nutrient-dense diet. That would be my, uh, my approach.
2: Uh, it sounds, uh, sounds like a wonderful approach to me, very similar to the one that I do. Uh, what about, when you talk about toxins, what about uh, glutathione, which is one of those big things in the liver? What do you do about that? What's its role with mitochondria?
3: So glutathione, uh, synthetase, is stimulated by uh, brassica vegetables, vegetables in the cabbage family and in the onion family. It's another great reason to uh, uh, include those in your diet. Uh, Lipoic acid can be helpful. Uh, Now, unfortunately, taking glutathione by mouth uh, uh, does not work very well uh, unless you have liposomal, uh, or you could take uh, some programs, use IV glutathione. Uh, which can be helpful, uh,
2: I've, certainly. I've done IV glutathione a few times. It, it definitely worked, and I, I you like that, huh? Yeah, and I, I do the the liposomal plus some other molecules uh, for better absorption. Um, that's one of the products I make.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so you do you use glutathione on a? As a matter
3: a, of fact, a, I use your product every morning.
2: You are using it. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay, I, I knew that no, you tried I, some, I but I didn't know if you uh, still used it. Okay.
3: No, I, I still use it, and uh, I discovered if I miss a few days. Uh, I can appreciate the difference, so uh, that keeps me very consistently with it. I find it to be quite helpful.
2: Thank thank you. uh, uh, That's amazing. I didn't mean to
3: give you that infomercial, but got it anyway.
2: Yeah, no, I I was really not sure if – I I knew I shipped you some a while back, but I haven't asked you about the feedback from it. So, All right, raw meat. I was a raw omnivore for a while when I was recovering from being a raw vegan, and um, most people freak out about eating raw meat. What's your take on raw meat?
3: So, if if you look at the Arctic uh, Inuit, uh, nine months—see, I think ten months out of the year—they're uh, consuming meat. It's mostly fermented, and traditionally it would have been fermented and raw, um, and and they had terrific health uh, and vitality. Um, so, uh, and I believe the Maasai in Africa have a lot of raw meat, uh, raw milk, and uh, blood mixed in with the milk. That's yeah. part of their uh, cultural traditions. So certainly we have traditions that thrive on that. In our environment, we have some challenges doing the raw meat in terms of finding uh, safe sources uh, from a public health perspective. So I I talk about raw meat in those societies in my book with the big caution that because of the challenges of how you find uh, that product, I can't make that recommendation. But we absolutely have societies that have thrived on raw meat.
2: Yeah, it, it's risky, and what about parasites? Do you cover those? Did you look at those in yourself? Is that a, a role? Do they play a role in MS?
3: So, uh, you know, actually, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a, a study using whipworm,
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and people ingest the whipworm, uh, and it had uh, decreased numbers of lesions and improved functional activity. Oh, for, for MS, not just for CDR? For, MS. I, for I actually,
2: MS. I took the That's pig it. whipworm. is that
3: interesting? Yeah, I, I, uh, that study I did it. is done in uh, Madison, uh-huh. uh, and they're continuing to work on that. I believe uh, there's application to do uh, another level of trials and patent applications, uh, et cetera. Did you? So do it? You, did I do it? No.
2: Okay, I can tell you that that if you scramble the whipper eggs, they're delicious. <laughs>
3: well, well, <laughs> but, I'll keep that in mind.
2: No, I, I just I drank a little vial of them, and it was it was kind of scary. Uh, this was maybe six years ago or so, I, I tried it, I ordered some from Thailand, and uh, I never felt any difference. I have no idea if they did anything, but it was it was kind of spooky.
3: So around the globe, 80% of humans uh, have parasites of some type. Uh, there's a big hygiene hypothesis that as the infections go down, you uh, use vaccinations, you have fewer viral infections, antibiotics, and fewer bacterial infections, uh, and the parasites are removed that they're uh, also in that same sequence of time-wise, dramatic uptick in the autoimmune problems. Uh, and so uh, one of the theories that's getting more and more traction is that those infections help regulate and mature our immune cells so they are not attacking self. And that perhaps these parasites have more of a symbiotic relationship than we appreciate. Now, those, full, those answers aren't fully in yet, so we don't know but it does, but i think we're having a huge experiment what the the long term consequence of vaccinations which mean our our children aren't getting these viral infections the antibiotics mean they aren't getting the bacterial infections what is the long term consequence in 30 40 50 years uh it's not quite so clear uh, what the health risks are um, and so it could be that we're we're saving a few lives by using vaccines, uh, and, and antibiotics. Nope, I and I don't argue that. Yeah. But we may be increasing the burden of chronic disease as a result. And then you have a a public uh, health policy, uh loss of a few lives versus uh the chronic poor outcome, uh loss of quality of life and uh healthcare expenditures, uh productivity, et cetera. These will be debates that we'll look back at at 100, 200 years that will have a very interesting perspective on the wisdom of those vaccines. They may have been wise. We may decide that uh, it was not such a good thing. Who knows?
2: It, it's really a tough thing. You know, as a parent of young kids, uh, my my wife, a you know, trained physician from Sweden, they have a whole an entirely different protocol and timing for how often and what vaccines you give to a child versus in the US where it's like you just kind of pump it all in pretty quickly as soon as they're born. And those those differences seem to have a huge effect and it's just not that well studied on either side. It, it's concerning for sure.
3: Uh, I think it's concerning. We don't have uh, another area that's not well studied. Uh, so you, you have the killed uh, virus attenuated so it's not gonna cause infection and then you add an adjuvant so you get more of an immune response. Uh, and we don't have a lot of studies that, that to guide us. How many doses of adjuvant can you give at one time in one day safely? Uh, and what are the health consequences of all those adjuvants? I, I think there are a number of unknowns. And the other question I, I would ask is, how many of these vaccines uh, need to be are, are, are life-saving? I, I don't really know. And I'll freely admit that the vaccine questions outside of my area of expertise. But as the hygiene hypothesis is gaining more and more ground uh, as one of the contributing factors for autoimmunity, it gives me a great deal of pause.
2: Well, my kids play outside in the dirt two hours a day, and sometimes they wash their hands, so let's hope.
3: Don't let them wash them too often.
2: Exactly. Let's hope it's the right thing, and let's hope it was the right dirt, right? Who knows? All right. I have a couple more questions for you if you have time.
3: Please. All right.
2: All right. Two other things for mitochondrial function because everyone benefits from better mitochondria. Like there isn't a downside to having highly functioning mitochondria. Number one, electrical stimulation. How does that improve mitochondrial function? Because you're one of the few people who who talks about using it besides me.
3: (laughs) Well, so the electrical stimulation um, for the other listeners who've been out of know about it. uh, It's done through the skin. Uh, We use cutaneous pads that get applied uh, to the muscle, Uh, you find the motor point, which is over the nerve going to the muscle, and you have a battery-operated device, uh, usually handheld. You turn up the current, and the current uh, flows through, causes a muscle contraction. You do a volitional contraction at the same time. By working the muscle more vigorously, uh, the muscle will end up uh, adding more mitochondria per cell, and the mitochondria will be more efficient uh there'll be less oxidative stress you also have more nerve growth more insulin like growth factor and nerve growth factor locally at the muscle to help you get uh larger healthier more vigorous uh muscle cells
2: is that going to increase your iq too because you're getting that effective exercise
3: it might i i, I don't we don't have okay. any uh lab studies to confirm that so that would simply be speculation but the potential mechanism is there yes
2: what a, what an amazing answer. I, I feel like there might be something there, but I have no idea. So I was hoping you would say, oh, there's 15 studies, but all right. <laughs> so maybe. Maybe. Right. The other question is around uh, our good friend MCT oil. What is its role in mitochondrial function?
3: So uh, the mitochondria can utilize sugar, amino acids, and fats to generate energy in the Krebs cycle. Uh, the MCT oil uh, in the liver will be converted to ketone bodies, such as hydroxybutyrate, which can enter uh, past the blood-brain barrier, go up to the brain, and enter the Krebs cycle and generate energy very, very effectively and efficiently. Uh, the ketone bodies are great stimulators of nerve growth factor, and so they are fabulous, fabulous fuel for the brain. Uh, it uh, The other beauty of MCT oil, it cannot get converted into fat in as in your fat cells, it's only going to be burned as fuel in your mitochondria. It's terrific stuff.
2: Uh, that is one of the many reasons that it's there in Bulletproof Coffee. And man, I, I feel the difference versus no MCT oil. So it's, it's yeah. something that I travel around the world with in a little bottle. And you saw me yeah. pour it on my asparagus, I think last time we had lunch together, <laughs> just because no, it matters.
3: <laughs> and the beauty, another beauty of MCT oil Um, So I I like to be in ketosis, I I feel uh, uh, better, more energetic uh, in ketosis. By using MCT oil to maintain that ketosis, it lets me get more carbs in my day, which lets me have a nutrient-dense diet that has all the vitamins, minerals, antioxidants. If you do ketosis without MCT oil, you have to reduce your carbs to about 20 grams, and at that level... You're going to develop vitamin C deficiency, vitamin K deficiency, vitamin. You you can probably maintain your vitamin A with liver. Uh, You won't have enough of the phytonutrients, and you eventually are going to start running into chronic disease because of nutrient deficiency. But with MCT oil, we have a buffer, so we can get the best of both worlds.
2: That is an elegant way of expressing it. What about just eating coconut oil?
3: Coconut oil, I love to cook with it. That's another fine option. Uh, the two oil uh, taste is, is uh, uh, a little easier for some folks. They don't care for the taste of coconut oil. So it's just another very nice option.
2: Got it. And there's that, that difference in the percentage of MCT and coconut oil, that lauric acid yeah. versus the shorter chain. Yes. Awesome. We are down to our final question, one you've answered before, but one that I'll ask you again because usually people yes. come up with different answers what are your top three recommendations for people who just want to perform better at whatever it is they do? So it doesn't have to come from MS or anything medical yeah. or not, just your, your top three most important things. What what matters?
3: Well, uh, you want to take out the foods that are at highest risk for food sensitivities. So uh, from my perspective, that's gluten, dairy, and eggs. So that's step number one. Step number two, I want you to get uh, more vegetables in. Uh, and I do the green sulfur color and then step three is you have to have good, high-quality protein. So uh, those, are, those are the first guidelines uh, I lay out.
2: I recommend that everyone check out your book. Uh, you have a, an amazing background and an amazing story. Your book is well-written. If you haven't seen um, your TED Talk, if you haven't seen Terry's TED Talk, you should see it. it. It's quite amazing. We'll put links to your book. We'll put links to the yeah. TED Talk. But tell everyone the title of your book. Give everyone your URL and just how oh, they can sure. find you.
3: So, uh, the Walls Protocol How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine. Uh, my website is terrywalls.com. That's T E R R Y W A H L S.com. I invite all the listeners to go to the website, download the free materials that we mentioned in the book uh, the terrific, uh, terrific Recipe Guide, and some information on uh, toxins. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, at Terry Walls. Follow me on Facebook, Terry Walls, MD.
2: Terry, thanks for being on the show again. I'm always pleased to get a chance to support your work and to let people know that you've got a new book out. What you're doing is important, and I really, really appreciate it. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you. If you're looking for a way to know which foods are making you weak, check out the free app that we just released called Bulletproof Food Sense. It works by using the phone camera in order to get a measurement of your heart rate, or you can just type in your heart rate if you know what it is from some other monitoring device. You do this before a meal and you do it after a meal a couple times. And based on changes in your heart rate, the application can help you to identify which foods are causing an immune response in your body. Based on that, you can choose to avoid those foods, and you'll find a huge boost in your performance just from not eating the foods that you have sensitivities to. You'll also find that you can lose weight much more easily when you're not eating foods that cause you to feel foggy and inflamed all the time. This app is free. It's called Bulletproof Food Sense, and it's available on the iPhone store. You can also take a step further. Check out bulletproof HRV sense. That stands for heart rate variability sense. Bulletproof HRV sense goes a step beyond food sense and it works with a wireless heart rate monitor that goes around your chest. You wear the heart rate monitor and it'll talk to your iPhone or your tablet and it'll show you your stress levels throughout the day. It'll help you know whether you're overtrained, overstressed, or even just help you know which meetings are causing the most stress in your nervous system so you can learn to take control of that stress. This is an awesome app. So number one, Bulletproof Food Sense is free. And number two, Bulletproof HRV Sense is a few dollars, and it makes a huge difference in how you manage and control your stress.